right. Good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, uh, you are probably wondering who I am. My name's Paul Ramsey. Um, I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn. Well, not here at Sojourn Montrose, but at Sojourn. Um, uh, I'm at Sojourn Galleria right now. Was at Sojourn Heights for almost seven years before that. Uh, in the final stage stages of a church planting residency, uh, about a year or so, Lord willing, behind Carlos uh, in the planting process in a neighborhood called Braisewood, Braisewood Place, which is directly south of here, probably about eight miles. Once you go on the other side of 59, keep going past Rice, uh, and then you'll hit the heart of our neighborhood pretty soon. Um, it's an honor to be here preaching God's word to you. Um, it's an honor uh, to have been entrusted with the task of preaching, to be learning to preach, as it were, practicing my gifting. Um, with y'all this morning. And so I'm, I'm glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here um, uh, uh, with us this morning. If you're just joining us, or if you missed last week, we're halfway through uh, uh, chapter 12, as you just heard Carlos read, of, of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in response to a letter that the Corinthian church had written to him asking a number of questions. And we're talking here in this part of the letter, Paul is talking about spiritual things, and in particular, spiritual gifts, and in particular, what the Apostle Paul refers to in our text as the higher gifts. Uh, he says at the end of our passage, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And he's speaking specifically about the revelatory word giftings that he had listed uh, in the passage that Cole read, uh, uh, preached on last week, verses 8 through 10 in particular. And admittedly, um, as I begin, I want to admit that I don't have a lot of experience uh, in this area. Um, it, I, um, I've been convinced for some time now from the Bible uh, that these revelatory spiritual gifts are still for God's church even today, that they did not cease in the days of the early church. However, um, it was really not until um, I had the opportunity at the end of July to go with a couple of brothers from Sojourn Galleria to this conference in Oklahoma City uh, at an Acts 39 church where, where their team was teaching, in particular church leaders, what it looks like to, to lead your church in uh, authentic, helpful, biblical exercises of these gifts. It wasn't until that, that was about a month and a half ago, end of July, uh, that, that I believe uh, that was the first time that I saw, um, it wasn't the first time, of course, in my life that God has worked miraculously, um, the first time that God has used these gifts to build up the church, but I think this was the first time that I heard these gifts named and then practiced in a way that was authentic. Um, and so this, I say that to say this is relatively new for me, and you, it might be new for you as well, and you might be leaning away as we talk about these, these, these higher gifts in particular. Um, but if that's you, I want you to know that that's okay. And we're glad you're here. We're working through this together as a church. Um, and I in fact, if, if that is you, I think today's text is something that you'll appreciate. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul, of course, introduced the topic of spiritual things. But then as we saw last week, uh, and as we're going to see this week, and as we're going to see again next week, Lord willing, um, Paul takes some time to hit some important foundational understandings of God and of the gifts that God is pleased to give to the church before he gets into actually practically what these gifts look like inside the life of the church. Um, and so uh, we'll get to that in chapter 14. And so what Paul says to the Corinthians in this text is an incredibly important clarification. I think it's important for us today. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray. Um, and last week, if you were here, Cole uh, made the, Cole, I listened to Cole's sermon. It was a great sermon. He, he said, uh, he, he asked the question of us as a church, what are we expecting when we come to hear God's word preached and we come to worship God together? And I want to pray with the expectation that God is actually here with us, brothers and sisters, and that he will move in power. And so let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each other. 
Thank you for your word, and thank you for the power that you say time and again in your scripture is for us, your church. Jesus, you said to your disciples that it's better that you go. When they were asking why you must die and leave them, he said, it's better that I go. You're going to see why in, in, in just a moment. And then when the Holy Spirit filled the church and the, and the church was sent out to take the gospel to all nations, Lord, that power is what is here right now with us. And so I ask you, Lord, that you would do your work in us. You would show us your love, disclose to us depths of your love that we have not experienced before. And move in us. Move in us, Lord, that we might pursue you in all earnestness and all the benefits that you've promised and you offer to us right now. Um, unify us this morning, right now, through this word, through this gathering. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You might, be, you might have heard of a guy named Francis Chan. He's a, he's a well-known teacher, pastor, uh, uh, and he's been speaking for, he has an extraordinary teaching, speaking gifting. He's been, for the past 10 or 15 years, he's been uh, invited to speak at conferences uh, around the world. He speaks weekly, week after week to, to rooms full of thousands, tens of thousands of people. Um, he was pretty formative in my early experience of, of, of my Christian walk. A number of his sermons really gave me an understanding of what relationship with God Met. But you might have heard of him. He started a church in, South, in Southern California um, about, I think, 15, 20 years ago. And quickly, because of his extraordinary teaching gifting, uh, the church exploded. It grew to something close to 5,000 people, which is a mega church anywhere, especially where he was in Southern California. Um, but then after a while, he, he became frustrated biblically. It was, it was as he was preaching through this, this passage, the second half of 1 Corinthians 12, that Francis Chan began, began to be frustrated biblically. He realized that every one of these people in this church has a supernatural gift that is meant to be used for the body, and everyone shows up to hear and see my gift. And it frustrated him biblically. And it led to the point, actually, to where a couple of years ago, you might be familiar with the story, he, he wound up handing off the leadership of his church to others and leaving that church to start a little church planting movement um, in little house churches called We Are Church, I think. Uh, in order to try to be more faithful to what he believed was the biblical model of membership in the church. And so not only was, was he responding, I think, to a biblical unrest, a disconnect between the, what he read in the pages of Scripture and, between, and, and, and what he saw in his life and in his church, but I think he also understood the fact that, that beneath this, the reason this is in the Bible, the reason Paul's talking about this this week, is that groups in which not everyone is valued are divided groups. Right? I'm sure you can picture what I'm talking about. This is groups in which uh, there are some who are highly valued for the function they serve or the, for the work that they perform, and there are groups that there are others in that group who are just kind of there taking up space. Over time, it develops into patterns of behavior where there's a clear division between the in crowd and those who are not in the in crowd. Sometimes there's this hierarchy of value can be explicit and antagonistic, like when, like when kids get bullied in school or at a societal level when governments write laws to subjugate a portion of the population. But oftentimes, most of the time I would say, it's, it's not intentional or agonistic, or, or antagonistic. Right? Sometimes teams just develop bad habits of interacting with, with one another based on the makeup of that team, and often uh, begin relying too heavily on a particular subset of the team due to, more often than not, the fact that there's a couple of extraordinarily gifted people on that team. You might think of a group project scenario in school where all of the work gets done by uh, one or two people, 
often due to the strong personalities of that, of that one or two people, and it almost always results in resentment. Right? Those who do all the work uh, are annoyed uh, because the others aren't doing enough work, and those who aren't doing the work are frustrated because they haven't been allowed to do the work that they want to do. And so you see groups in which not everyone's valued are divided groups, even when it's not an overt uh, thing, it's even when it's not an explicit thing, even when there's not overt resentment or pride in these dynamics, there's always a felt experience, really experienced division between those who are the visibly gifted ones in the group and those who are not. Rather than feeling like a valued part of the team, then, individuals begin to feel isolated and lonely, believing that they might as, not, might, might as well not be in the room. And that might resonate with some of us. See, loneliness, loneliness is rampant uh, in today's world. And I think a key part of the reason that loneliness is so uh, prevalent uh, is because we, as a culture, uh, we don't do a very good job of valuing people. And this is true even in the Christian world. One of the things that I get to do uh, at Sojourn Galleria is lead worship most Sundays. I, I, so I lead the music. And so every now and then as a part of that job, I'll be listening to Christian music. And a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to the top 40 Christian charts, um, listening to what you know, the American Christians are listening to in general. Um, and I was struck uh, by one of the main themes of a number of these songs. Uh, that, that theme was the theme of being relieved of my fears, and in particular, my fears of not being good enough. Just two examples. You might know the song, No Longer Slaves, by Jonathan David Helzer. It says, I'm no longer a slave to fear. Uh, and and, and, and uh, what the antidote that is presented in that song is, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. The antidote is the, is the love of an intimate, loving father who wraps his arms around you and tells you that you belong. That's what that song is about. It's about belonging with God. It's the antidote for loneliness. The number one song on the Christian music charts um, is by an artist called Lauren Daigle. Uh, and, and it's been, the number one song has been there for about seven weeks. is a song called You Say. And it begins with this line, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every lie that tells me I do not measure up. So you see that there's this lie working to make us believe, gosh, you know, there's all these gifted people, you're not good enough. And the chorus is this litany of statements ending with, when I don't belong, oh, you say that I am yours. That's what the song is about. Um, those are good songs. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying, that's, that's nothing about those songs. They're great songs. But here's the thing, they're resonating with Christians. It's, because, it's what we're singing about because it's where we are as a church. This heightened level of focus on loneliness and on the fear of not being good enough, of, of not being valuable, is a reality for us right now. And while this isn't, of course, an exhaustive explanation for why that's the case, it's a very complicated issue, loneliness, um, I think one of the key reasons for this is that we struggle to value one another. We're in a celebrity culture where it's the most beautiful, right, the most talented, the most accomplished people who get all the airtime. Uh, and I think this culture, unfortunately, has slipped its way into the church. Here's one way to describe this. I, I heard it described this way recently. Um, this is an unfortunately common way that American Christians think about life on mission for God. Um, if you, what do you do if you're really sold out for the mission of God? What is it that you do? You go overseas as a missionary. Right? If you're not quite there, but you're still pretty good, what do you do? You become a local church pastor. If you're not quite there, but you're still all right, what do you do? You go into work for a nonprofit or some underpaid social service like teaching or social work. 
Um, and for everyone else, there's the business world. <laughs> I think that's a common way of understanding things in our Christian culture. And even though we might not be as precise with those four buckets, many of us probably wind up thinking about things along those lines. Many of us uh, begin to see our value to God and to his mission in the world as being attached to where we land within that hierarchy. So you see, having lost sight of the fact that God has miraculously gifted every single one of his children, that every member is important, equally important, equally valuable in what God is doing in the world, wherever and however God has gifted us and called us, we instead slide into a pattern of thinking that, 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 that only focuses on the public, the visible, the celebrity, the thing that we think, oh yeah, that's, that's really what all of us need to be doing. It's unsurprising that the majority of us then are left wondering whether we're needed, whether we're wanted, whether we belong. But here's the thing. You see, I think for Paul, that's exactly the thing. That's exactly the thing that, that God gave the gifts to his church in order to combat. Into a world filled with loneliness and division, uh, God sent his spirit to bind people together as one with him and with one another, baptized into, into, into one body, as Paul says in verse 13 of our passage, and to give gifts to each member so that it's clear that each member is essential to the mission of God and valuable to what God is doing in his or her local context. So in other words, it's not just that we need to know that we belong in the family of God. We need to experience it too. It's not just about a theological understanding of belonging. It's about a real tangible experience belonging as God miraculously gifts us and works with us, within us, and through us in the church. The problem is in Corinth, even where they're uh, apparently practicing these higher gifts like crazy, that's the problem. They're practicing these gifts like crazy rather than in order, and as a result, they're sowing division. There were some in the church who were being exalted for having these higher gifts, uh, which not everyone had, and the church was dividing between the haves and the have-nots between this set of giftings, between that set of giftings. Factions had developed in the Corinthian church. There were these hyper-charismatics who were using these gifts like, like, like crazy, giving words of prophecy, speaking in tongues, performing miracles. Uh, and then there were others who were looking at the divisions that they were causing and saying, let's get these charismatics out of the church. We want nothing to do with them. And then there was people all the way in between trying to figure out where they landed in the mix. And so Paul enters into what's going on in, in, in Corinth. And he essentially zooms them out to point out just how absurd it is that this is happening. Christ died to tear down the dividing walls between people. Did he then turn around and send the promised Holy Spirit just to redivide them, to re-hierarchicalize them? Absolutely not. These spiritual, these Holy Spirit-given gifts are given for the building up of the whole body. As Cole zoomed in on verse 7 last week, Right. Basically, Paul's thesis in this section of the letter is that these gifts are for the building up of the whole body, not for the building up of individuals within the church. And so probably because of the situation Paul knows that he's writing to in Corinth, he doesn't go right into talking about the exercise of these gifts specifically, but instead he pauses to speak clear words of correction, of compassion to this church. And while he wrote these words to an original audience that very much needed them, I think that even today in our divided and struggling culture, right, struggling with the idea of value, with the idea of belonging, the Apostle Paul's words speak clearly and compassionately to us in a way that we, much, we very much need to hear. And so, what does Paul do? He really does one thing in this passage. He gives this powerful metaphor. We are the body of Christ, many members, but one body. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, verse 13, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
Paul says, listen, this is God's intent. This is God's design for the church. This is what Christ died in order to do. Christ died to tear down the walls that served as divisions between people and sent the Spirit to baptize us into one body. There's a lot that could be said about baptism, but let me say this. The word for baptism in the Greek is baptizo, and it's the same word used for a ship that capsizes, that's flipped upside down. So in other words, what God was doing in in baptizing us into one body is he is flipping over the order that the world knew, the order of division, of hierarchy, of competition. God flipped that upside down, baptized us into one body, and said, each one of you belong in the body of Christ. We are all different. We're all coming from different places. Here, Paul says, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. Other places, he, he expands this list, male, female, Greek, barbarian. Right? Yet by the miracle of God uniting us to himself, we all drink from one spirit and we together make up the body just as God designed it. Right? So what Paul goes on to say is that in uniting us to Christ, in making us one, right, God doesn't erase the diversity that exists in his people. Right? Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. In fact, when God brings us together, The beauty of the miracle of God is that he didn't strip down the things that made us different from one another. He sanctified them. He made us into this beautiful patchwork quilt that testifies to his love, his creativity, the beauty of God, the beauty of God's creation. We know that a painting of a single color is not beautiful. Well, excuse me. Um, If you've been to a modern museum, I actually did go to a modern museum, and there was a red canvas into all one color. I need to learn more about modern art. Um, It's beautiful. But if you look at a masterpiece from the Impressionist age, for example, and I know many of you are artists, so you probably, I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking about my area of expertise here, but if you, know, if, you, if you think about the Impressionist age, at the way they play with color, with light, and, and work together these different colors on the canvas to make this beautiful picture, that is what God's design was in baptizing us into the body of Christ, making us into one unified picture, diverse in its beauty, in the, in the spectrum of colors, look at verse 14. For the body doesn't consist of one member. It's not a painting of one color, but of many. Let me keep reading. Fifth, verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You see what Paul's doing here? Is he saying, you're not just one member, you are many, and God has arranged things just as he wished, as he'll go on to say in verse 18 and a couple other places. The first group of people that Paul turns to in this text are those who don't see themselves as an integral part of the body. These are people who are saying, because I don't have this gift, because I don't have that passion, I must not belong here. Nonsense, says Paul. This is key. To give a little bit more context, of course, in Corinthian culture, there were things that were in. This is Roman culture, ancient Rome. Uh, if, you had per, if, you were, you know, if you were gifted in speech, right? if you had persuasive, excellent speech, uh, if you had money, if you were wealthy, if you had power, if you had a good pedigree, if you were born into the right family, right? if you were strong, if you were beautiful, these things were in in that culture. And the laws in ancient Rome protected the strong and neglected the weak. This was a whole society built... Uh, and organized based on these structures within society. Some were better than others. The better ones get all the rewards, right? And the worst ones just die eventually. Essentially, that's what was happening back then. And this culture was slipping into the church, right? The strong people were elevated. The weak were ignored. They weren't looking like the church that Christ died in order to create. Think about how countercultural this was for Paul to say to this church, right? Paul was talking to the less presentable ones who thought, I don't belong here who everyone else thought, you're right, they probably don't belong here. And he's saying to these 
people, in the hearing of those who thought they did belong, he's saying, you belong here too. This must have been incredibly encouraging for these weaker ones. And probably there was some note of rebuke there for the strong who's, who were simply functioning in what made them comfortable, not going, not thinking, uh, not caring at all about how their actions, how the way they live might be affecting the people around them. Don't let anyone tell you, in other words, that you don't belong. Whether explicitly or whether it's a lie that you somehow start to begin believing. Um, what are the things like this for us today? Could be, could be that, that, that you're not a hipster. You don't own a house. You're not married. You don't know how to teach. You, you can't argue like the best of them. You don't feel as comfortable in social situations. You're prone to anxiety. These are things that Satan will grab onto and keep you focused on and convince you that because of that reason or those reasons, you don't belong here. You're not like fully a part of what's going on here. You don't have as valuable a role in this church because you don't have kids yet. Once you have kids, then you're going to understand. Get that out of here. Nonsense. Do not believe those lies. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, verse 20, there are many parts, yet one body. You see what Paul's doing there? Paul's saying, we need different kinds of people. We need them. Diversity, in other words, doesn't point to exclusion. Because you're different from me means that we can have nothing to do with one another. No, diversity points to the beautiful inclusion of Christ for all in his body, especially given our differences. And this is all by the design of God, right? Think about the nature of God. Early on in the Bible, it says that we were made, human beings were made in God's image. And think about who God is. God is three in one, the perfect blend of unity and diversity. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, the Shema from the Old Testament. And God is three. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were made in God's image, and one of the beautiful ways in which we display God's character is being perfectly, paradoxically, but perfectly one, even though we are many. Diversity is beautiful. Right? And, and listen, everyone's talking about diversity today. Uh, you don't need to be a Christian to know that diversity is a good thing. And what's the purpose of diversity, though? As Christians, we believe that diversity exists to display the heart, the love, the beauty of God. Diversity itself, in other words, is not the goal. You can get a hundred completely different types of people in the room, different backgrounds, different languages, different colors, different stripes of every kind. And you, you're not even halfway there. You've, you've done step one. You've gotten people in the same room. But the challenge is to get all of those different kinds of people on the same page. All those different people working together for a common goal. And this, Paul says, is what Christ has welcomed us into. God had to die in order to make this happen. But he did, and he died to make us one, to baptize us by his one spirit into his own body, one body. You see, humanity for the course of human history has tried to get there. It has tried to get to diversity. Not only do you not need to be a Christian to, to know this, but this is something that's been taught. This isn't new today. We haven't discovered as an American culture, oh, we should be talking about diversity and inclusion. This is something that all of humanity has known. We know that we should be together with people who are different from us, but it hasn't worked because we can't let go of ourselves. Right? As a result, all of human history has chronicled this tugging, pulling, insistence on our own way. And because of that, diversity only ever goes so far by human effort. The easiest example of this uh, is politics, right? We love diversity up to a certain point. 
Right? You can think whatever you want to think. We're in the United States. We're a free country, freedom of speech, yada, yada. We, we love it. We love diversity. You can, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life unless you pick that way. Right? When we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we don't actually love diversity as much as we should. Because at, at, at our root, our heart is to preserve and protect and uplift our kingdom. But this is the miracle of salvation. Right? This is the miracle of baptism into Christ. True unity in the midst of diversity is possible. And it has been made possible by what Christ did for us. To tear down the dividing walls between us. To send his spirit to make us one. Now, in other words, unbelievably but truly, verse 20. There are many parts, yet one body. You are one. As a result, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Let me pause there. There's something to acknowledge here. Right? We're united, but we're not uniform. And one implication of that is that there are parts of the body that need more lifting up than others. If there are stronger people within the body who have been given gifts to strengthen the weaker. And this, this is potentially controversial, but it must be said. Relationships within the body is not, are not necessarily a two-way street. This is very simple to illustrate. Think of a family, parents and children. No father would resent his daughter for not giving him as much as he has given to her. I have two daughters, two and a half and eight months. Um, and if I think about my oldest daughter, my older daughter, she's two and a half, money is an easy example. Right? How much money has my daughter given to me? Guess. Zero dollars and zero cents, approximately, roughly. How much have I given her? Right? I counted. I didn't count. A lot more, a lot more than zero dollars and zero cents. Right? Do I resent her for it? Absolutely not. God has gifted me to be her father, has organized our family just so. So that one of the things I get to do is not just with my wallet, but with my whole being, I get to lift her up. I, I pray her, for her a lot more than she prays for me. She does pray for me, right? When I put words in her mouth, okay, Tallulah, say daddy, or say God, thank you for daddy. God, thank you, daddy, you know. So she does pray for me, uh, but I pray, I pray a lot more for her. Do you see my point? Right? Our family has been so ordered that I have been given a position unlike hers. And I need to go out of my way to let her know, especially as she starts asking these kinds of questions, the questions of value, of belonging, of merit. Right? I need to go out of my way. I have to commit my life to honoring her, to showing her that she doesn't need to do anything to justify her position in our family. Right? How wicked would it be if I started either explicitly or implicitly telling my daughter, you know what, you're old enough now. Until you start performing, I'm going to start withholding my love for you. How terrible would that be? For Paul, that same reality is true within the body of Christ. There are some who are higher than others. Right? There are some who are more able, who are more gifted in these ways than in these other ways. There are some who are stronger or weaker, like Paul has spent the, the, the previous few chapters talking about in the body. But we've all been given one another. Each of us, strong, weak, gifted in this way, gifted in that way. We have all been given one another, and all of us are indispensable to the function of the body of Christ. That's the point that Paul's making. You see, for me personally, every time I get up to preach, as long as I don't totally blow it, 
Right? I get encouragement in Thanksgiving. I appreciate all of that. Right? I don't want that to stop for me. I don't want that to stop for any other more publicly gifted person in this church. But what Paul's saying in this passage and in this section of the letter is that each of you has been given a miraculous spiritual gift for the building up of the body, and each of you needs to be shown honor and love and acceptance and to be shown explicitly. Right? We need to show honor, greater honor to those that are less limelighted, verse 23, so that they know even more deeply how important they are to the mission of God in the church. Just one example. Think of the gift of service. This isn't just that you like helping people, which that's certainly included in this gift. But this is, the gift of service is a miraculous spiritual gift, according to the Apostle Paul. Right? For some reason, when you seek to, to, to step in to meet needs, for some reason it happens just at the right time, in just the right way, for just the right person, by a miracle of God. Right? That's God miraculously gifting people within the church with the spiritual gift of service. Now, does that person get up every Sunday to talk and tell these stories? Probably not. And so we need to go out of our way to lift those people, that person, up. To notice that in our parishes. To see gifts exercised and used by our brothers and sisters. And, and not just say, I see this in you, thank you for doing that, but I see this in you and I want, to see, I want to do whatever we can to make sure that you can use this gift as much as possible. Because when you're using your gift, that is where you're receiving much from the Lord. The point of the gifts is that all can celebrate together what God has given to our church through you. We need to go out of our way to do this. And this is God's design. Think about the model that Christ gave to us. What did, what did Jesus say? He said, so the last shall be first and the first last. If anything, right, service, serving one another, even though it's not the most public limelighted gifting that's listed in the Bible, Service is the one that Jesus zooms in on time and again and says, this, that is what my kingdom looks like. In other words, Jesus himself modeled what he's telling us to do in verse 25. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let me say a couple of things about those three verses. First, Paul reiterates again the fact that it is God who has composed the body this way. Right, this isn't an accident. Right, the reason you are gifted the way that you, that you are and that you don't have these other gifts isn't, isn't because you didn't pray enough last week. It's not because you're not humble enough or that you really screwed up 10 years ago. No, this isn't an accident of God. This isn't our fault. These are spirit-given gifts of grace. Right, given by God, by God's design, so that it's not an accident that any of us is gifted the way that we're gifted. The second thing in these verses, the point that Paul's driving at is in verse 25. Why did God compose the body with such beautiful complementary diversity and then himself give honor to the part that lacked it? Verse 25, so that there may be no division, but that the members may have the same care for one another. This is, this is beautiful, guys. God designed the body to care for one another. And it's important that we do this with everyone. Right? The gifted teacher, the gifted giver, the gifted servant, the gifted counselor. Right? All are worthy of honor and all receive the same care. Verse 25, from the rest of the body. So if one is suffering, think about it. If one of our pastor's homes burns down, what do we do as a church? We up and go and care for that pastor and his family for the, for, for the, for the, the suffering that they're experiencing. Right, if one of our newest members' houses burns down, what do we do as a church? 
we up and go to that newest member to care for him or her and his or her family right, in their season of suffering. If one is honored, we all come alongside him or her with joy, right, celebrating with them the fact that God has loved our church through that person. Think about a family with several children. Right? There, there, there's one kid who's into football, one kid who's into art, uh, and one kid who's into Legos. Right? Does the family go to the football games but not the art shows? Does the family get together, get up on Saturdays and go to the football games, but neglect to notice this incredible Lego structure that's waiting there on Saturday morning in the middle of our living room? No. Does the, does the family look at that, the kid who's interested in art and say, well, we don't really know much about art, so you can hang some of that on the wall. We'll go to an art show maybe next year. Absolutely not. Listen, valuing one another might take some learning. You know, as a parent, you might have no idea what the word impressionist means as it refers to art. You might have never played with Legos yourself as a kid, but by golly, as a parent, you're going to start reading Lego comics with your little kid, right? You're going to learn about art and go to those art shows and go take your kid to museums so that you can show that kid, I'm learning and I want you to know that what's important to you is important to me. Families do this. We know that we should do this. How could this not be the case within the church? To move on, after saying these things, giving these qualifications, Paul finishes this section with a pretty meaty passage. All right, verses 27 through 31. Let me read. Paul says, Now you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire higher gifts. Think about what Paul's just been talking about. Right? He's been talking about the fact that the whole body matters, that everything, every uh, part of the body, even those parts that are apparently unpresentable, are given greater honor so that there may be no division. And then with that said, Paul goes on to say here that the body, the unified body, has a functional order. God has designed the body by his will and by his appointment each part of the body is appointed to a particular function or role. So while it might be more desirable to be a hand, because you get to manipulate things, you get to write, you get to be expressive with the hand, you fight with your hands, hands are more exciting, the foot might look at the hand and say, all I do is carry the body around. Right? And want to be a hand. But, 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 but Paul is saying that God has so ordered the body such that each part fits perfectly where it belongs and is essential. And if the body does its job of valuing that foot appropriately, then the foot will no longer be jealous of the hand for being a hand. So, so Paul's telling this, but then he gives this ranking, right? He says, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, so forth. What is Paul doing? Is he saying that some are more important than others? Well, he can't be saying that, right? Based on everything that he's been saying up to this point. No, what Paul's doing, I think, is, is brilliant. Paul's saying on the one hand that there is to be no division, that every part is essential. And on the other hand, there's an order in which things are to be understood, an organizational structure. There are some gifts that are more visible than others. Not everyone can be a mouth, but, but the body needs a mouth. Some gifts that in themselves are an honor to receive and to practice. And think about what he said earlier. The less presentable parts receive greater honor. Why would this be the case? God knows that the temptation to envy is great, right? but our propensity to comparison with one another is not something God is going to allow to frustrate his plan for the body. 
So he urges us through the Apostle Paul here to go out of our way to honor those with the gifts that aren't considered the greater gifts so that they are able to see how indispensable they are to the function of the body, even as these higher gifts are being practiced. We know this to be important. Why is it that authors, uh, in the beginning of their books, many people skip to the first chapter, so you might not know what I'm talking about, but in in the open, there's always a page that says acknowledgments. And authors always thank their, their wife, their husband, their family. Long-suffering couldn't have done this without them. Why is it that, that high-powered CEOs always go out of their way to, to, to thank uh, their assistant or the team of people below them who are making them look good? Why is it that the MVP of every game, the most valuable player at any athletic contest, as soon as they get the microphone to make their, their acceptance speech, they start to say, I couldn't have done it without my team? Why is it that they do this? Because... Uh, because we know that without these others, our performance would be nothing. Right? Without these others, their performance would be nothing. It can be contrived, sure. Right? You can be full of pride and still say, oh, I couldn't have done it without my team. Right? But that's, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is talking about real, authentic, heartfelt thanksgiving and honor being shown to every part of the body. This is real unity, real honor that we're giving to people without whom this thing wouldn't function properly. What is a preacher, for example, without a congregation to receive and apply what he he preaches? To close out this passage, Paul says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Some people believe uh, that when you're saved, you're given all the gifts that you're ever going to have. According to what Paul says here, though, that can't be true. Paul says, earnestly desire in a way that hints that we should be seeking things that are not yet in our possession. And to give a corrective for what Paul's saying here, This doesn't necessitate that every single person must manifest each one of these gifts. That's not true. That can't be true based on what Paul has been saying up until this point. And furthermore, look at the the rhetorical questions that Paul rattles through in verse 29 clearly lead to the answer being no. Not all are apostles, not all are prophets, not all are teachers, miracle workers, etc. God is pleased to give these gifts to the body, but not all to one person. What this means is that this earnest desire can be met by God within our community. But there are gifts that we do not have yet in our church that we will experience by God's grace through particular individuals through whom God is pleased to minister to our church. We should earnestly desire these gifts. But the question is, what happens when someone's given a gift like this? When, some, when one person is given a gift like this, does that mean that his or her desire has been realized, but then the rest of us are left wanting with our desires unmet? Verse 26, no. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If one person within our church receives a gift of prophecy, then that is a gift from God for our whole church. If one person within our church receives the gift of faith uh, and a gift of healing, is able to pray with faith and see someone get healed miraculously, then this is a gift of God for the entire church designed to show God's love and show the real power and presence of his kingdom here on earth. Paul's point is not that you're going to get all of these gifts, and that whatever you haven't gotten, you should be discontent about. No, what Paul says is to earnestly desire these things so that when we watch as God builds us together, we get to celebrate with one another because the whole body benefits and celebrates when one one part is gifted and honored. To say one more thing about verse 31, for some of us, this will correct our view of the gifts. Paul says to desire them, to earnestly desire these higher gifts. 
Many of us have not lived lives, myself included, have not lived lives that could be fairly described as lives of earnest desire for these higher gifts. We have all kinds of reasons for why that might be the case. Right? Maybe we haven't experienced these gifts. Maybe we've seen them misused, and we want to steer clear of misuse. Maybe we've come to a theological perspective that doesn't leave much room for these gifts. But all those things go to show how important it is for us to base our understanding of God and the gifts that he is pleased to give his church on his word rather than on our experience. You see, here in one sense, Paul is saying, don't overreact. (laughs) There's a reason Paul doesn't end the passage with verse 30. Think about what he's been doing. With an eye on those in Corinth who have been using these higher gifts improperly, they've been sowing division, Paul's been reining them back here in chapter 12, correcting their misuse of them. But lest they misunderstand his point, he ends with verse 31. While the higher gifts can be misused, in other words, Paul says, nevertheless, they are important and they should be pursued. He doesn't want the Corinthians to, out of fear of their misuse, overreact and cease to pursue them. So if we need to, brothers and sisters, let's let God's word correct our view of these gifts. Paul instructs us in no ambiguous terms to earnestly desire the higher gifts. And this might be easier to understand when you compare it to something like evangelism. We're told, uh, in a manner of speaking, to earnestly desire that people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. And so what what does that earnest desire look like in our lives? Does that mean that we sit at home on the couch and wait, and we're just getting ourselves ready for when someone comes up and knocks on the door to ask us about Jesus? Is that what that kind of earnest desire looks like? Sometimes it might feel like that's what we're doing. But no, earnest desire means I'm not going to wait for my neighbors to knock on my door. Sure, I want to be ready if they do, but I'm going to go to them. I'm going to pursue relationship with them. I'm going to go knock on their door, invite myself into their life, pursue them out of love for them, and ask that God might open a door through which I can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Right? That's earnest desire. Similarly, with these gifts, does earnest desire look like sitting and just waiting for God to do this, but not really thinking about it very much? No. Here's what this doesn't mean. Right? This doesn't mean that we, we look back and conclude, I'm a failure. That's not what this means. It, it means to simply let God's word inform your life Let God's word ignite a desire in your heart for these higher gifts, and let's see what God might do. It might be you that is given a gift of tongues or given a word of prophecy or the experience of praying with faith and witnessing of real, true healing before your very eyes. It might be someone else in the church, but whether it's you or whether it's someone else, we all get to celebrate together at what God is doing and how he's building the church up in love. So you see, in this passage, Paul basically does one thing. Right? He uses the metaphor of the body to show very simply that no matter which part you are, if you're in the body, then you are valuable and you belong. And given what he includes, where he includes it in this chapter, we see that for Paul, with respect to the, discuss, to the discussion surrounding spiritual gifts, membership in the body comes first. You must get this first before you get to the gifts. First, you must realize that the gifts don't make you a part of the body. God saves you into the body and then gives gifts. Second, and crucially, you must understand that these gifts, like every gift that God gives to his people, are not for me, they're not for you, they're for us. They're for the building up of the body. 
The Corinthian experience of these gifts for Paul was exactly the opposite of what these gifts were given in order to do. Rather than tearing down cultural walls that had been built by the culture around them, the way that they were practicing these spiritual gifts was actually reinforcing these walls, dividing them even further. So into this culture, Paul writes this clear word of correction, saying that with an understanding of the unity that we have in the Spirit, with the fullness of love that God has given us, which we'll dig into next week in chapter 13, we can actually watch as these gifts do what God has always intended them to do, build up the body together in love and power as he brings his kingdom to bear here on earth as it is in heaven. You see, for Paul, the spiritual gifts, and especially these higher gifts, are essential to the life of the church. And once we get that they're for building up the body, we're able to engage uh, with great care as we practice them, earnestly desiring to see God use these gifts in our midst to build us up. We read, brothers and sisters, of the miraculous power that is available to us by the Holy Spirit. How could we not be the kind of church that earnestly desires its display in our church? The gifts are essential for the body. They're how the body builds itself up in love. And think about it. Uh, why would we not desire these gifts? When, when we went to the conference, I had the opportunity to go to this conference with, with a couple of brothers in Sojourn Gallery. One of the things that each of us wrote down in our journals and then we shared together that first night is we noticed that for some reason, and this was a church that was hosting us. This, this wasn't just keynote speakers. This was, this was a church with its leadership teams and real members of the church who were putting on this conference teaching us how to use these gifts. One of the things that we all noticed, we wrote it down and we said, man, this church feels like a church. Everybody was important. It wasn't just Sam Storms, the guy who was giving, the, who was who was in charge, who was the lead pastor of the church. It was every single. There were men, women, children ministering to us. This group of church leaders praying for us, encouraged to use their gifts. This this place felt like a church. You see, Francis Chan. Uh, I heard him talk about. Um, what he's learned is a talk he gave. It might have been one or two years ago. I don't remember exactly when it was. He, he gave this comparison. He said, it's kind of like, a, it's kind of like the difference between an, an orphanage and adoption. Right? In an orphanage, you have a bunch of kids and one person in charge. And, and those kids, they, they, their, their needs are being met. They're being fed, clothed. They have a place to sleep. There's a roof over their, over their heads. They're learning. But there's one person in charge, and, and, and they're orphans. But when you're adopted into a family, Right, think about the love that you share, the value that you know. This family, these people are not going anywhere. My dad's not going to quit and leave and find a different job. He's going to be my dad. Right, that is what we're going after here, brothers and sisters. When we have one person in charge using their gifts or one little subset of people using their gifts and the rest of us are just kind of sitting there, that's an orphanage. But when everyone is a valuable part of the body, everyone knows that this is how God has gifted us, gifted me, gifted us together to be building us up, all of us together in love, that is the church. So let us, brothers and sisters, earnestly desire this kind of church, these kind of gifts, understanding that it's all for us to build us up so that God's kingdom can be pushed forward in the world, that God could bring to bear his kingdom on heaven, even as it is in earth, in power and in love. Let me pray for us.